Welcome to Mayfield Baptist Church. We are very excited to have you with us here. We do encourage you to follow us on our social media, which you can access through our website at mayfieldbaptist.com. Please feel free to like and subscribe to this podcast to keep you up to date with our latest messages. We do hope you enjoy this recent message from NBC, that it may help you connect to God, grow in your faith and serve in your own context. I have ended up with a double task this morning. Um, I'm going to be speaking on a Bible character in the Risky Business series, but I'm also bringing the series to a close. Um, So I'm bringing some thoughts on Esther, who faced some big personal risks in the things that she did on behalf of the people of God who were a minority in a foreign land. Well, my job's done now, right? You can all go home. Um, Esther, it's an interesting book, um, but I just want to go back to how I came to settle on Esther to speak on this morning. Um, So shortly before the series began, Grant and I were talking about who I'd speak on, and he strongly suggested that I choose a female character. And I initially wasn't super keen to do that. Um, But as I thought about it, Esther came to mind, and then I heard something intrigue me in a lecture. Now, I'm going to use a number of different words to describe what we were looking at, because language is a funny thing, and often what one person hears when a word is used isn't what someone else understands of it. So we were looking at a person's job, vocation, profession, responsibilities, things they do in life, or calling, and discussing the idea that we're all primarily called to serve God in whatever life or work circumstances we find ourselves in. We read, oh, wrong slide, sorry. We read in 1 Corinthians 7, 20 to 21, that each person should remain in the situation they were in when they were called. When God called them, sorry. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. And in Ephesians 5, verse 5 to 6, slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favour when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. So it was in that context that the lecturer presented us with some, I guess you'd call them vocational titles or callings seen in different biblical characters. We have community leader for Moses, Daniel and David. Civic leader for Nehemiah. Retail and manufacturing for Paul, or bivocational, as he also served the church as an apostle and missionary. And Esther shows up on that list as a beauty model. So I thought that was a pretty ironic vocation for someone who risked it big for God, but it's pretty accurate. We read in Esther 2.7 that Esther was lovely in form and features, and in verse 12, She had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil and myrrh, and six months with perfumes and cosmetics. Now, that's not really my sort of thing. Um, Some of you may have noticed a dramatic change in my hair colour and style, and that's because I leave it so long between hair appointments. Um, So I think 12 months of beauty treatments as the main focus would probably bore me silly, but some of you might really like that. Um, Notice that it's her beauty, though, that opens the door for her to be where God could use her. So that brings us to the first point. God uses ordinary and unlikely people. So Esther is an ordinary and unlikely character. She isn't presented as someone who's ambitious, 
or wise or a leader, just someone who happens to be beautiful and the king likes. We've seen that in the verses that we just read. She's also an orphan. In chapter 2, verse 7, we see that she's helpless and at the mercy of extended family caring for her. And she's a woman. Now, I'm only going to make a brief comment on this and only in relation to Esther herself and not gender politics or what the Book of Esther says into that. Um, If you are interested in that, I've got a good article I can pass on to you, but it's not our focus this morning. Um, So all I'm going to say in that context is that the book is set in a patriarchal society. Uh, Golden Gay, in his book Old Testament Theology, says of the place of women in that society and of Esther herself, women have to work within a system that puts them in a subordinate position, and that makes Esther a useful model for Judites in dispersion because they have to do that. I'd also add that it makes her a good example for us as Christians today because Christianity is becoming more restricted and unwelcome and so it's a good model for us as well. But what enables Esther to take the risk? Well, the first point is she submitted to and learnt from those that were more experienced. When we first see Esther, we see her being guided by others. In chapter 2, verse 10, She follows her cousin's instructions not to reveal her nationality. And in chapter 2, verse 15, she defers to Haggai's guidance on what to take along for her introduction to the king. She doesn't ask for anything and she doesn't refuse his advice. In verse 19, we're told that she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions. We're not told anything about how she might have felt or about, about the situation or what she might have been thinking. The only picture we're given in the text is that she is a dutiful person who submits to her situation and the advice she's given by others. And that's what was expected of her in that setting. So in chapter three, we see the development of a plot to destroy all the Jews. Now, we're not going to go into the details, but a brief outline is that Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman, who's an official that the king has commanded others to kneel before. Haman's told and his his rage drives him to not only want to destroy Mordecai, but all of the Jews. So we see the action of one ordinary man endangering all the Jews who are still in Persia. Chapter 4 opens with Mordecai being overcome when he heard of this plan and the law that was passed to wipe out all the Jews. And he puts on sackcloth and ashes. Now it's at this point that we see Esther and her character develop. She, this is the first time we see her choose an action, but it leaves a little to be desired. But she doesn't take her mistakes to heart. She originally responds to hearing of Mordecai and sackcloth and ashes by sending him some new clothes. Some people suggest that she's attempting to solve the problem by approving appearances. And it might be fitting, given that the setting that she's in, it's appearances that have been the main focus and enabled her to advance. But I would speculate that maybe she was trying to offer Mordecai a way to enter into a space where he could deal with the problem. We see in chapter two, chapter four, sorry, verse two, that Mordecai has only gone as far as the king's gate. And that's because you weren't allowed to enter the king's gate if you had sackcloth on. And it's a bit ironic because in chapter three, verse eight, we're told that the basis for the law to destroy all the Jews was that they do not obey the king's laws. 
It's further on in chapter 4, verse 6. We see the eunuch goes out into the city to speak with Mordecai on Esther's behalf. So maybe she just failed to understand the significance um, of the state that Mordecai was in and she was trying to uh, make interaction and dealing with the problem more convenient. Either way, she didn't really choose a good course of action as her first attempt. But then we see her acknowledge the reality of risk and her fear. Mordecai tells Esther of all that's happened through the servant that she sent out. In verse 8, Mordecai gives Esther an instruction and tells her to go to the king and beg for mercy for her people. Both Mordecai and Esther knew exactly what the outcome of that request might be. And this is the first time that we see Esther question instructions given to her by her cousin. In verse 11, she says, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the golden scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. So at this point, she might be doubting her standing before the king. Um, he was enamoured with her, but it's been some time since he's asked for her. So has that faded or was that ever strong enough for him to be receptive to her unrequested approach? And Esther knew both the law that she referred to and also the recent history that the king's favour towards the previous queen wasn't enough to spare her from the consequences when she displeased him. So, yeah, she's scared. I would be scared as well. Um, knowing what the outcome could be. But she allows others to speak into her circumstances and decisions. So her cousin responds by pointing out that she's at risk either way, as is her family and the wider community. He adds that the possibility that her place has been given to her so that she can act in this situation. He also says that he's confident that the Jewish people will be rescued whether she acts or not, but that her and her family will miss out and bear the consequences if she doesn't do her duty and act. And she takes it on board as she has the guidance of her cousin up to this point. But then she really steps up. And I think it's because that there's a bigger picture and storyline at work that Esther can be courageous and take on the risky business that's being asked of her. But she doesn't do it alone. So she doesn't fly solo. In chapter 4, verses 15 to 17, we see she's no longer instructed by her cousin in how to proceed, and she actually gives him instructions to go and gather all of the community and fast from both food and drink for three days, including the nights, along with her and her attendants in preparation for what she has to do. And her cousin, we're told, carries out her instructions. So she's actually at the point where she has to take a risk and she's making decisions for herself and including others um, in what, what she needs to, to be supported in that. But she doesn't act impulsively, which I think is a key point. We see that she shows great wisdom and restraint in how she goes about her task of asking for the king to spare her people. We've seen in Chapter 4 that she doesn't just rush into the action that she's decided on, but she takes the time to prepare. She sets aside three days of fasting. In chapter 5, verses 1 to 3, 
we see she pleases the king and allows, and he allows her to enter. But more than this, at that point, he says to her, he actually says to her, um, anything that you ask up to half the kingdom, I'll give to you. But she doesn't ask, which, yeah, she sticks to her plan and has the king and Haman come to a banquet. And then, then again, he asks, he says, anything you ask up to half the kingdom, I'm going to give it to you. But she doesn't ask. Still, she says, come to a banquet the next day with Haman and then I'll make my request. So I don't know about you, but after the risk of just showing up and your life being spared by the king, it would be pretty tempting to just jump in and ask if he said that he's going to give it to you. But she doesn't. She resists it and she holds to her deliberate patient approach. Why does she do that? We're not told how she decided her course of action, but I'd like to offer a suggestion. So in Chapter 1, we see that the previous queen loses her place because of her perceived humiliation. So the queen had not come when the king had called for her to come, and that was what resulted in her loss of place. Um, his advisors had feared that it might translate into other wives refusing the requests of their husbands, and that, that's how the previous queen is off the scene and Esther was able to be here. I think that Esther was already bordering uh, on similar territory by having approached the king without summons in the first place, which was a bold move even if a man had done that. And for her to reveal in a public setting that she was a Jew and that the king had inadvertently endangered her life and unfairly all of the Jewish people as well would have been humiliating and disrespectful. And by inviting the king and Haman to a private banquet, she showed respect for their positions and authority and honoured the king despite his bad decision. We saw earlier that Golden Gay spoke of women within societal structures of the time, and he also has this to say. As a woman, she may be in the same position of power as a man or even a position of greater power, but the kind of power she exercises may be different from the kind men more characteristically exercise. So I think Esther exhibits wisdom in seeing a way to work within the system um, to exercise her power and bring about the change. She was bold enough to step out of the bounds when needed because there was no, no other choice to get an audience with the king, uh, but then she seeks to not offend while still working to change the circumstances. So I just want to go back to a couple of things we've just skipped over uh, on how God is guiding. So he can guide through circumstances and our knowledge of him. Um, as the intro video showed, God's not referred to at all in this book. Uh, and there are only vague references to religious practices. So in chapter 3, verse 8, there's a reference to their customs are different and you've got Mordecai who's putting on sackcloth, which was a religious thing to put on sackcloth and ashes to mourn, and there's the fasting that Esther asks for. And Mordecai and phrases the suggestion to Esther that maybe she was put there for this purpose. Elsewhere, we're more likely to see you know, um, God say, God say to somewhere, someone that you're here for this purpose, you need to do this. Or um, somebody else might say, 
you know, that God intended for this, Mordecai phrases it as a question, um, which is interesting. And we're not given any information about what the time of fasting and preparation looked for, look, looked like. Sorry, there's no prayers recorded, uh, but the original readers would have understood fasting as an appeal to God, and would likely have seen prayer in, implied during that time. And it's obvious from the text that Esther had a plan, but we're not told anything about how that came to be. We haven't seen direct instructions from God on what to do or who is to act. But Mordecai and Esther both just know that the right thing to do is to act on behalf of those who have no means to act on their own behalves and save themselves. They know that God will save his people one way or another. And in the absence of God speaking directly, they can rely on what they know of God and what God has shown and taught his people throughout history to help them make an informed decision on how to move forward. A friend sent me a devotional during the week and a little snippet is fitting here. It said, it should be unnecessary to be constantly saying, oh Lord, direct me in this and in that. Of course he will. And in fact, he's doing it already. If our everyday decisions are not according to his will, he can, he will press through them, bringing restraint to our spirit. There are times when we can and should just act on something and make a decision trusting that God can and will step in and change our course if he needs to. Golden Gay says in summing up the Esther story that God's intervention is implied but veiled. The narrative pushes readers to see God behind the Esther story and behind their own, but they choose whether or not to do so. Their story would not work without the exercise of faith expressed in fasting, crying and hoping. It would not work without the exercise of human responsibility and it would not work without the coincidences. In the absence of God, of supernatural revelation of the kind God gave Moses, Mordecai and Esther are more illuminating models for the believing politician than Moses and Aaron. So throughout the series, um, we've seen God uses unlikely people who feel like they were not qualified or prepared for what's being asked of them. And they are asked to take big personal risks for his glory and for the good of his people, including the people that don't know him yet. Of the eight people we've looked at in this series, three of them, Moses, Paul and Philip, had direct supernatural encounters um, where God appears or speaks directly with them and gives them specific instructions on what they are to do. The others have all looked the others we've looked at have all stepped out to take big personal risks based on what they know of God and how they were to live as his people. So we as Western Christians, we don't live with the reality that our very lives will be at stake to stand up and be counted on matters of faith, acting ethically, stepping in for others who are being taken advantage of or mistreated, or sharing the gospel, at least not currently. A time might come when that will start to happen, but we're not there yet but we can still take big risks in serving God and looking out for others. So are you willing to speak up when there is injustice happening in your workplace, even if it might cost you your job? Are you willing to lovingly challenge cultural norms that go against how God intended for us to live, even if it will make you unpopular? Are you willing to share about your faith 
and the hope that God offers when the opportunity comes, even if it makes you uncomfortable or might change how the other person sees you. We're going to take a few minutes to reflect on what God might be highlighting for you through these messages. There's going to be a song played with the lyrics on the screen. You might like to use it as a prayer or just let it be in the background while you think and pray about situations that you might need to take a risk in, either to give God his proper place in your life or to be his hands and feet for others. Let's also think about where God might be leading us as a church to take a risk for him to be able to work through us. And if there's something that you'd like prayer for in this time, there's people that are available to do that for you. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that um, you have revealed yourself to us um, through scripture, um, through the things that you've done in this world and your people. I just pray that you would help us to uh, listen to your voice and your guiding. Um, I pray that when we don't seem to be hearing from you, that we would be able to trust that we can rely on what we know of you and your will, um, the way that you work and the things that you would have us do as your people. I pray for this church that you would also help us to have wisdom in the decisions that we make um, and that we wouldn't be afraid to take risks uh, and to step out to do your work in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.